We all have our own views of what the perfect balance is. I think that the, the basic principle that there is a consensus on is that you have to do both. You have to repair and upgrade the existing system, make sure it works well for the everyday riders, and you have to prepare for the future. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission in Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the Citizens Budget Commission. For those who don't know, CBC is a nonprofit, nonpartisan budget watchdog focused on New York State and New York City. Find our work online at www.cbcny.org and at CBCNY. I'm at Maria Dulles. And Gotham Gazette is published by Citizen Union Foundation. We're a watchdog news publication focused on New York City policy and politics, as well as New York State policy and politics. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at TweetBenMax, and we're at Gotham Gazette. And for What's the Data Point, we're a few episodes in now. We're talking lots of public policy and budget numbers and how everything affects New Yorkers' daily lives, trying to bring some of that public policy uh, to you in digestible ways and understanding sort of some of the big political questions of the moment and how they affect uh, everyday people here in New York. And so for our fourth episode here on What's the Data Point, we have another guest. Uh, today we're joined by Jano Lieber, who has recently come to the MTA as Chief Developmental Development Officer, excuse me, uh, and is overseeing MTA Capital Construction. Uh, so welcome, Jano. Thanks for thanks for being here. Thank welcome to the podcast. And before we get into it, Jano, uh, Maria, our data point for this episode? is $32.5 billion, which is the size of the capital plan as approved by the MTA board most recently in May. The capital plan covers 2015 to 2019 and was originally approved in September 2016. Approved by whom, you may say? Well, the MTA board has representatives of the governor, the mayor, regional uh, county executives, riders, and the transit union. Of the $32.5 billion in this plan, almost $17 billion is dedicated for subways and buses, $5.4 billion is for the commuter railroads, and $3 billion is for bridges and tunnels. $7.1 billion, or 22% of the plan, will be under the management of the MTA Capital Construction Cap, cap Company and our guest, Jano Lieber. This will include projects such as initial work on Phase 2 of the 2nd Avenue subway, the Eastside Access Project to bring the Long Island Railroad into Penn Station, sorry, into Grand Central, rather, um, and the construction of a third track for the Long Island Railroad. Our guest also has responsibility for MTA real estate development uh, following a successful tenure at Silverstein Properties, as well as overseeing upgrades to the signal system, which have been in the news recently. Jano, welcome. Great to be here, Maria. Thank you. So, so Jano, um, that's a big portfolio and a lot of responsibility, uh, and you've recently gotten going at the MTA. So just give us and our listeners and New Yorkers a little snapshot of when you got started, who you are, and, and what you've been looking at uh, in your short tenure thus far with the MTA. Sure. I, I joined the MTA literally a month ago uh, at the beginning of, July, of uh, June. And um, I came because after 14 years that I spent mostly on rebuilding the World Trade Center, um, which was an amazing kind of civic mission that New Yorkers participated in and watched and, and, and were passionate about, um, I was looking for a new kooky mission um, that I thought would make a difference. And uh, uh, Governor Cuomo, his passion about infrastructure 
um, is what attracted me to this, uh, this organization and this opportunity. Um, since joining the, the MTA, I've been doing a couple of things. One is trying to get up to speed on the existing projects, which include, as you said, the Eastside Access Project that'll take Long Island Railroad into Grand Central, the third track project, which will grow the track capacity of the Long Island Main Line very, very significantly. Um, the second phase of the Second Avenue subway, which is just being designed, as well as the first phase that opened at the beginning of 2017, and the other projects that, that we're working on. I also, uh, since I just arrived there at the moment, that the, the, the public debate about uh, capacity and signaling in the signal system of the subways in particular was reaching a, you know, a high pitch. Um, I did spend a fair amount of time uh, in the preparations for, the, for the, the Genius Conference, the competition to try to address throughput and capacity in our New York City subway system. And so you're brought in at this time. I don't know if when you agreed to this, you had quite a sense how much this would build, um, yeah. but you knew obviously there were major projects and the system was in need of a lot of, of repair and upgrade, but also these major projects that you're overseeing. What are you good at? Why, why are you, why were you asked and, and you know, this work that you've done in the past, yeah. what's, what's your skill set? Uh, it's a good question. Um, my, my wife asks that a lot. <laughs> um, my kids as well. Well, he, here's why I think that um, folks thought I might be able to make a difference in this job. One, having coming off the World Trade Center, which was an incredibly complicated combination of public infrastructure and private development, um, I did learn a lot. And we had some success in moving forward a project which was physically and from an engineering standpoint hugely complicated that had a lot of different players and which required a lot of public consensus building um, and um, and we had some success and i think that hopefully is transferable too i'm a, i'm a i'm a subway junkie i started my career in the Koch administration working on the first uh, mta capital program from city hall um, and i worked in usdot in the clinton administration um, so I have some of that background, um, and I'm passionate about the, the public transportation system. I think it is our town square. It's where New Yorkers encounter each other, and it's probably the, the most regular and intense exposure to what the government does um, or doesn't do for New Yorkers. So um, it's something I really care about, and hopefully I can make a difference. And so there are a lot of things going on. Um, the governor you mentioned the Genius Grant competition, um, Amtrak repair work, uh, some reduced fares, rerouted trains, Joe Loda coming in, um, a state of emergency. So tell us and tell listeners, um, what are the reasons to be hopeful? Um, what are you looking to do soon? Mm -hmm. um, and do you have a sense of, of there being a movement in the right direction here as people are sort of panicking about the conditions? Well, I don't think there's a reason for panic. I mean, I, I grew up in New York City in the 1970s. And I remember when I got out of college, there, the, the subway trains breaking down every 6,000 miles. And now it's over 120,000 miles, the equivalent. So we've made a lot of progress, but obviously we have a ways to go. But we know from the experience of rebuilding the subway system and how New York has come back since the early 80s that we can do it. And I think that having a governor, honestly, who is 
talking about infrastructure all the time does make a difference. And in fairness to him, as recently as last week, he put another billion dollars on the table to, to help address some of the throughput and capacity issues we're encountering. Right now, New York is facing the result of our own success. We, in effect, increased, brought subway ridership back close to double, I think, where it was, you know, in the, as I said, in the early 1980s, the bottom of the, uh, of the subway system. So we brought all these new people onto the system, and yet the system has continued to age. Even as we've continued to invest through the capital programs in new cars and new systems, there are portions of the system that have aged, and we have not brought fully up to a state of good repair. So a huge amount of the $33 billion capital program is for state of good repair. But the other thing that we have to do, and which is specifically in my scope uh, of, of my part of the MTA is to keep planning for the future, to keep doing projects like the Second Avenue subway, which reduce crowding on the Lexington Avenue line by 40%. You know, it is uh, obviously only three or four new stations, depending on how you count, but it has significant impact on our capacity and our ability to continue to grow and absorb and move people by mass transit. We have to continue doing projects that will protect our future and allow us to grow in a, um, uh, in a way that's kind of urbanistically friendly so people can rely on mass transit and commuter rail rather than having to resort to automobiles and so on. So I think that's a big part of our, my mission there is to keep those projects that are future looking going at the same time that we're rebuilding the existing mass transit system. So I think there's there's no question that the reliability of the system is far greater than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And, you know, the MTA's capital plans have been successful in getting the system there and getting riders back on the system to feel like it's reliable and to, you know, help power our economy and, and everything in the region. Um, but now we're sort of starting to see some of the wear and tear and the age. So how do you think, you know, how does the MTA think about the balance between the investment in state of good repair and the expansion in this project? I think one criticism is that perhaps there's too much investment on the mega projects and on expansion of capacity and too little focus on some of the core infrastructure and getting that to the, the level of repair it needs to be. Look, uh, you know, we all have our own views of what the perfect balance is. I think that the, the basic principle that there is a consensus on is that you have to do both. You have to repair and upgrade the existing system, make sure it works well for the everyday riders, and you have to prepare for the future. There's no point paving over potholes if, you, if you're just going to run out of space on a road. I shouldn't use a road analogy, but it's, it's one that folks sometimes understand. So, th so where you exactly draw that line, it's a fair debate. I think that the, 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 the package of projects that we have going on the, as you say, mega project side, the future going, are, are you know, it, it may not have been the result of a perfect analysis, but just think about it. The Second Avenue subway is a project that everybody's been talking about for 40 or 50 years since they tore down the Third Avenue L, and it's, as I said, had huge benefits to today's riders in addition to growing capacity. East Side Access, which is gonna create a whole new terminal under Grand Central, under the existing Grand Central to serve the LIRR, is a, is a hugely important project because you know, all those people coming from Long Island, not only do they get huge time savings, but they're gonna have a brand new terminal, and it speaks to preserving Long Island as a viable part of our region. It's a huge part of our region, but there has been disinvestment in Long Island on the private sector side, uh, in the in the industrial economy, remember Northrop and Grumman 
close down some other things. So we have to strengthen the connection so people can get to the city and get to good jobs. I will quickly say yeah. that geographically speaking, it's unbelievable that that doesn't exist already, right? I mean, I know this is a law, mm-hmm. history, right. you know, there's historical questions and reasons not, but it's it, it's so commonsensical that yeah. it needs to happen. And, it, and yeah. as you say, Long Island needs to remain a vital commuting hub. And absolutely, I, I'm sorry. We're, we're, no, you're you're absolutely right, and and. Um, we need to talk about what the benefits are for Eastside Access because it's been a long time coming. It got going in the late 90s and it's taken so long. Why it's taken so long is not just tunnel boring or the creation of a new station, but the complexity of the inter, you know, this is a little technical, but there is a the so-called Harold interlocking, which is where all the tracks in Long Island, including Amtrak tracks coming from New England, all come together in Queens next to Sunnyside Yard. And the complexity of that space and the need to upgrade the signaling in that space and to create new connections and bypasses in that space is one of the principal challenges. And all of it has to do with, uh, all that work has to do with Amtrak and making sure that Amtrak is supervising the safety and so on, and all in an operating train environment. But when it's done, it will have huge benefits to Long Island. And together with the third track project, which is going to grow the capacity on the Long Island main line, which now accommodates in excess of 100,000 riders daily, 250 trains, we're going to really create, much, I think, a much better situation vis-a-vis jobs and economic development on Long Island. The other project, the other future-going project that I think is quite important that our office is spending time on is creating the so-called Metro North to Penn connection using the Amtrak New Haven line, which comes through the East Bronx, down through this Harold interlocking I just mentioned in Queens, and then goes to to Penn Station uh, under the East River. Using that East East Bronx uh, right-of-way, putting some new track in there and putting four new stations to areas that are population centers, areas that we can hopefully have more affordable housing, but which are disconnected from transit, Co-op City, Morris Park, uh, Parkchester, and Hunts Point. All about roughly 50,000 residents right now, and they could probably have some additional residential or commercial activity. But we really need to, to you know, create opportunities for those people to connect to jobs and, and so on in, in the East Bronx, which is an underserved right now. So those are a few of the projects that I think are going to have huge impact on the future. Two, two quick follow-ups on what you just said. One, so the argument clearly is, the stance clearly is, we don't need to slow down on any of these things. We actually need to maybe speed up on the big projects because we can do that and take care of repairs, upgrades, all the sort of nuts and bolts that aren't the big major mega projects. That's clearly the philosophy from the governor into the MTA and that you're now involved to oversee that big chunk of it. I think that I think that is the vision. I mean, again, the gut, everybody is learning a little bit as we go. So um, clearly, the signaling issue may require some additional money. And then you heard the governor put another billion dollars on the table last week just to address that issue and the through the associated capacity issues. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were, you know, further discussion about resources going forward. There is a commitment to address the existing subway system capacity and performance issues right now that is, I think, you know, equivalent to uh, certainly the future going mega projects and, and, and probably greater. There's that the state of emergency on procurement that's been declared, the subway transformation plan. There's no question that the MTA is reacting to 
uh, the conditions that we're all seeing on the rails. Would you ever say in a meeting with Joe Loda, maybe the governor or someone he, you know, that represents him is there, uh, maybe the new uh, CEO yet to be determined, would you ever say in a meeting, you know what, we need to slow down one of these projects and re uh, and divert resources uh, to state of good repair? It, it's not a it's not a, an, a question I can answer hypothetically in theory. I, I think that those those choices are going to be constantly revisited. The capital program that was adopted a couple of years ago um, took a shot at uh, I think in fairness doing both state of good repair and uh, the new projects. And we're continuing to re-examine. Part of what's going on is we need to, um, the, the so-called genius competition, we need to establish what is the strategy now for addressing the capacity problems and the throughput problems that the system is experiencing. Right. So to stay on this for a second, yes. I mean, the, the, there were notable projects that were part of the last MTA capital plan and even the one prior. We're talking about the extension of the 7 to the Hudson Yards um, area. Phase one of the Second Avenue subway, even the East Side Access project, which is included in this plan as well, and these projects, you know, have been running slightly over budget, maybe a little more than slightly, but also have been delayed. Um, and in the case of East Side Access, the timeline has really been stretched out from the initial estimate of when it was completed. And granted, there is complexity there. These are not, you know, it's the it's not as simple as it is to build in, you say, other urban, more sprawly er cities and areas where you can just go ahead and, and claim the right of way and build. Um, but the MTA's projects are, even when compared to dense, you know, older cities like London, still costing more per mile, right? So it's, it's a complicated cost structure, and the projects seem to be really delayed. And so, you know, you as a new person who presided over this really successful building at the World Trade Center, what do you see as the weaknesses of the approach? I mean, where can the MTA specifically get better in how it manages these mega projects so the capital dollars are not being chewed up um, and diverted from some of the maintenance projects? It's a fair question. Look, I, I haven't come to the conclusion about what is wrong or what specifically needs to be fixed in, in project management, but I can tell you some of my general observations about what private sector project management does well, um, maybe a little bit better than, than public sector. One is um, you have to have a design process that is going to resolve all the design questions and then not reopen them. So you need a, uh, a, a very close connection and dialogue between the end user, in this case, the transit authority or the Long Island Railroad, whoever's going to operate the facility, and who's designing and developing the project in this it, at the MTA? That would be my office, the so-called Capital Construction uh, Division of the MTA. So you very much you need close collaboration on design, so that you don't have changes, because changes obviously open you up to contractor claims and delays and so on. So that's something that we clearly can do better on. The other thing I observe that we could do better on is procurement. How? You, you know, you, you buy the, the contractor services and the construction work. You know, the, the public sector contracts, I think, uh, without getting too technical, don't allocate risk that well between the owner and the, uh, and the contractor. Sometimes we say to the contractor, take all these risks about conditions that you don't know about, and they throw a huge premium on it. And we'd probably be better off letting the public sector own and manage those risks and try to eliminate them rather than having the contractor, in effect, charge you a much, much higher price for risks that 
that he or she doesn't really understand or can't envision. Um, and finally, the third aspect of it is to make sure that we're very effective on when we finish a job to do a punch list. I know everybody who's been a homeowner or had a, a renovation project goes on understands that punch lists can drag on and on and on. And when you have contractors who are sitting around still on a job site and wanting to get finished and you're dragging out those costs, those labor costs, those management costs for the little stuff and it takes a year or more to finish, that also has a price tag. So each of those things has both cost and schedule implications. And those are a few things that I'm, I'm looking at to try to you know, hopefully do a little bit better. Uh, so are these things within the MTA's control to, to fix? I mean, is this a matter of coming to the table more smartly about how contracts are negotiated with contractors? I mean, there's some design-build authority that's been allocated to the MTA. It's being used as part of the Enhanced Station Initiative. Um, you know, how, how, who needs to be involved to tackle these problems and get the MTA on a more streamlined and efficient process? Good question. So first of all, the MTA agencies that... The, you know, the accretion of, of different contract provisions that end up costing you money and time doesn't happen for no reason. It wasn't just because people are bad or dumb. It has because people are trying to be cautious because they don't want to, they say, okay, the contractor should take a risk because we want, we want to know exactly what it's going to cost. We don't want any surprises. But, but the, the premium on giving the contractor that risk can be very, very great and it may be more responsible to try to be a good owner manage the risk. So you have to get the MTA family and all of the, the agencies to agree on changing contract provisions that may have been sitting around for a long time. You need to actually do public sector procurement, which has all of these competitive requirements and takes a long time and adds costs uh, in many different ways. Um, and to try to make it a little easier for the contractor so that they, don't, again, don't throw a lot of extra premiums on it. You need We need to do better to make sure that we deliver the, the laydown areas and the logistics plans that contractors want and accept and make it easy for them to operate and do construction rather than saying at the last minute, well, you can't have that area or you can't bring your equipment there or changing the rules so they end up with a change order and, and it's an expensive negotiation. All those things that require us to work together in the MTA family to change our behavior and importantly, to make sure that our project managers frequently who are consultants don't work for the MTA because we can't, you know, we need to grow very substantially for projects and then contract again when the project's done and so on. So you frequently, we use consultants to manage projects to make sure that our consultants do a good job in, in not creating additional costs and schedule problems for the contractor. So we're here um, in our last few minutes with Jano Lieber, who is uh, a month into uh, overseeing the MTA Capital Construction Company. Just last uh, couple questions, Jano. Um, the, you indicated the governor has put another billion dollars on the table. He said it'll be in next year's budget, um, you know, infusing the MTA with some more money. The governor has also said New York City needs to up its contribution to the MTA, while Mayor de Blasio has said no, the MTA is not allocating its current resources well enough. Is that something that comes across your desk and you have a sense, I know you're very unlikely obviously to sort of get into political battles here, but your job is partly political as you mentioned. Do you have a sense of, of who's right there? Or are they both right? Well, l listen, you know, the, the, the debate about how much the, 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 the city contributes to the MTA capital program has been going on since I got out of college and, 
got into government in the early 1980s. So it's not a new debate, and it's it's one that you understand in, in, in a system of government where um, there are different levels of government, have different responsibilities, but everybody is all invested in the success of the system. There are going to be debates about who spends how much on what. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, what I do think is, is important is the governor, you know, the billion dollars that the governor put on the table last week enables us to really get into more aggressively to the question of what we can do within the current capital program to address signaling and more generally capacity and throughput in the system. And that, that you know, that enables us to, to think big about um, what can we do to put more trains through the system at once. Now, there's an existing signaling initiative that the MTA has been uh, in implementing, uh, albeit a little bit slowly for many people's taste. Um, which is called CBTC, Communications-Based Train Control, which are these model sig modern signaling systems which um, allow you to have trains operate safely but much closer together so you can put more trains on a line at once and, and obviously have shorter wait times. That is hugely important. It's been, in, it's been done on two lines, the Canarsie line, the L, and the number seven. Now it's being done in the current capital program on the Queens Boulevard line, which is among our most crowded. And now we have an opportunity to see, in addition to the governor's idea of are there leapfrogging technologies that could allow us to, to address the capacity problem quickly, and that's the purpose of the Genius Grant, but it also enables us to think about can we deploy CBTC, um, the existing modern signaling system, more quickly and maybe in a different sequence. So I think it's, it's created momentum that, that money and that challenge has created momentum for this whole issue, and uh, I, I expect something good to come of it. I have um, a couple last questions for you that maybe you can answer in sort of one sentence, you know, sort of a soundbite for listeners who are not experts. One is this genius grant. Can you just capture sort of briefly, like, what exactly it is that the purpose of this is and what you're hoping hoping to get out of it? Okay, so it's, it, it is, as I said before, the idea of, Two the purpose is increasing the capacity, throughput, and reliability of the, of the subway system. And there are three components. There's a, a challenge about signals, there's a challenge about cars, and there's a challenge about communications. All of them are about how do we get more throughput, capacity, and reliability of the system. Two, two potential avenues. One is, again, to accelerate the deployment of new signaling or similar known systems as a way of putting more trains on the tracks and in the station so people can get to work or wherever they're going faster. And the other is what we call a leapfrogging technology. Is there a technology out there? For example, something that's being used in the driverless car world that's moving so quickly technologically. Is there a technology that we could adapt to the subway system that would allow us to make a quantum leap in terms of capacity and reliability in, um, in a safe environment? And then there's, a, there's a, a, a secondary challenge as well, which is how do we do communications in a really crowded tunnel system where there isn't much room for new conduit or anything like that because it's so tight and you know these are obviously old tunnels and they're not very big. How do we get more communications capacity so that riders could conceivably have more connectivity while they're in the system? And, and we're also going to be looking at the ideas that come back to us 
um, in the so-called genius grant competition. There's a million dollars for each of the three categories, signals, cars, and co communications. And we, you know, sometime in the fall, um, we'll, we'll have a, a designation in each of those categories. Uh, the other one is the state of emergency procurement change. What does that allow you to do? Well, I, th I think it allows us to bypass a lot of the normal competitive processes and the, you know, to do more negotiated uh, uh, procurements and potentially for less approvals within the bureaucracy. Um, you know, they're really just studying that now. Um, it may be uh, they're studying it, how it works. It, like well, no, I'm saying that the, the MTA's lawyers are, are studying exactly how to implement this so it has the most benefit. Um, the, the, obviously, the one, one twist is that um, even though the, we have successful, the governor successfully suspended a lot of the procurement rules with that declaration of emergency, we still have some stuff that comes with federal money. So the extent you're using federal money, you have still some, some of those uh, uh, same process issues, but but l l right now I'd say it's premature to say exactly how it's going to be used. But the agency has really sprung into action to try to make the most of it in its existing procurements. Thank you. And um, we, you just hit on federal funding, and there's so much more to discuss there. We're going to let you go. Uh, the only thing, I, other thing I wanted to ask you, Jana, was um, Rahm Emanuel's op-ed. Did, did did you read read that one on the Chicago subways? I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Any uh, did that get passed around? I think uh, it's great that Rahm and Chicago, <laughs> which is a fantastic city, is 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 able to have some positive press in the national press. <laughs> Um, you know, obviously they've had, still the second city, right? They, they've been having a tough time with the coverage of their, you know, their crime challenges. But, and I think it's it's great that Chicago, which is a great system, obviously Chicago, as great as it is, only carries a lot less people than we have on our one Lexington Avenue line in New York. We have, you know, seven out of ten subway riders in in America are in New York. So, so it, it, it's positive news, but obviously New York is a very, very big system and we have to address uh, the challenges that we have here. Thank you. Thank you to Jana Libra for joining us on What's the Data Point. We appreciate it. We'll watch uh, as you move forward with your work. Thanks for being on. Awesome.